you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. And now, Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome to Move the Sticks. DJ and Bucky back with you. And uh, Buck, we've got a fun show coming up today, man. We've got our buddy Bruce Feldman's going to stop by, uh, get a chance to uh, to visit with him. But we've got some other business to take care of as well. Yeah, man, I, I'm excited about the interview with Bruce Feldman because he obviously stays on top of it from high school to college and those guys moving on to the pros. He kind of knows everything um, about those lower levels. But, man, this is an exciting time because now that we've been able to put um, the Super Bowl to bed and kind of cast our eyes to the draft, I'm just excited about what this draft will bring. More importantly, I'm excited to see how many different teams kind of change their process based on the success that we saw from some of the rookies last season. No doubt. I'm, uh, I think we should look at the quarterback position here as we go into the offseason. Uh, we're going to get a chance during the uh, conversation with Bruce to, to talk about some of these other position players in this draft class as well as some interesting uh, thoughts I know he has comparing Nick Saban and Bill Belichick. Um, so that will be a, a fun conversation. But I want to start here at the quarterback position, Buck, because we've got the guys we're going to talk about. Kyler Murray, is he, is he going to play? Is he not going to play? We've been there, done that. We've had that conversation. Um, you know, we've talked about Drew Locke and, and uh, Daniel Jones. We saw them down there at the Senior Bowl. You get a chance, I think, a little bit later. Are we going to be able to roll our conversation that you had with Dwayne Haskins a little bit later on in this in this show? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Uh, I had a really good conversation with him at, uh, at the Super Bowl. Um, man, I'm really excited about him. The more I talk to him, the more I kind of fall in love with what he could be at the next level. That's great. I, I'm I'm uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that conversation. Saw a little bit of the video that we put out there the other day. Um, I think we're also going to play your conversation with Nick Bosa uh, during today's show as well. So we got that uh, both those interviews coming up. But on the quarterback subject, I know you mentioned uh, how impressed you were uh, with Dwayne Haskins, but maybe the most intriguing name on the veteran market is uh, is Super Bowl MVP Nick Foles and what that market's going to look like. Looks like him and the Philadelphia Eagles, that, that obviously is coming to a close. He's paid back the $2 bucks he had to pay back. Um, and he's either going to be a free agent or he's going to be traded here. So his, uh, his time as an Eagle is coming to a close. What's the best fit, do you think, Buck, uh, with Foles? You know, it's, it's, it's tough because, like, I, I sent a text around. I was talking to some of the guys um, in the league, and I got hot and cold responses on Nick Foles. Yeah. Uh, when I talked about the prospect of maybe having to pay him $25 million plus giving up a pick, maybe a third-round pick, to get him, I didn't get many takers. They were like, ah. I think I'll do better. I think I'll wait on what comes around the corner. I think I'll wait on what's behind door number two. Um, I think the, the, the thing about Nick Foles that may drive some evaluators crazy is you just don't know what he is. He had the great year on the Chip Kelly where he had 27 touchdowns, only two interceptions, play, played at a Pro Bowl level. Uh, then after that, didn't necessarily play great thereafter. Didn't you see him with the Rams and he can't 
necessarily make plays. Goes to Kansas City. He's back up. Doesn't really do anything. Reemerges in Philadelphia under Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson kind of takes him under at the end of that Super Bowl year. Digs into the old tapes um, where Nick Foles was playing well under Chip Kelly. Continues to do the things that he did under Chip Kelly. They win a Super Bowl. He goes back to the bench this year with Carson Wentz. Reemerges. Has some success. Them doing the same stuff that they did with Chip Kelly. So are you willing to commit to doing Chip Kelly's offense to help Nick Foles play at the high level because we haven't seen him play at that level outside of playing in that system and in that structure? All right, so hear me out on this one. I think there's only one team, and this team's been mentioned a bunch with him. I really think it's the only team. I think the Jacksonville Jaguars is the only team that makes sense for Nick Foles, and I'm going to explain myself here real quick. Let me tell you who the comp is, who Nick Foles is, in my opinion. He's Brad Johnson. That's who he reminds me of. Mm. And you look at Brad Johnson – on a team that was ready to win um, down there in Tampa, that makes sense. You know, okay, you're ready to go with his skill set, his ability, surrounded by what he was surrounded by, great defense. Um, you know, you've got a good play caller there. Mm-hmm. Um, they had some veteran receivers, had a good back. Um, all those things kind of made sense. Brad Johnson's skill set played, and they were able to go chase a Super Bowl. To me, Jacksonville is the only team that's close. The, of the teams that are looking at, at quarterback changes or need a guy, I don't think that the New York Giants are, a, you know, a decent quarterback away from from playing with the Super Bowl. In fact, I don't know that he's an upgrade over Eli Manning. So that that's not one. The Washington Redskins are not ready to win a Super Bowl. Uh, that's not one. Miami's not ready to win a Super Bowl. They're not a decent quarterback away from getting to that point. Uh, the Denver Broncos, you know, they have some good pieces in place there. I still don't think he's a difference, but you know, enough of a difference between Case Keenum that he's going to take you to a Super Bowl. However, I do think Jacksonville with the pieces in place with just stable, steady quarterback play, could make a deep run. So that, to me, is the one organization that makes sense. you got Filippo there who knows him well from their time in Philly. If I'll put it this way. If, if Nick Foles is not a member of the Jacksonville Jaguars, I'll be surprised. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that kind of, like if you read the tea leaves, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and the reason it's sensible is because the offensive coordinator – knows him really, really well. So you would like to think that he would know how to mask his flaws, elevate him in terms of playing to his strengths, and allow him to play the game the right way in terms of the way that he is kind of built to play it. The issue that you may have is, man, look, John DiFilippo likes to throw the ball all over the yard. And the Jacksonville Jaguars are a team that is built to run the football. Can he not only just elevate Nick Foles, but can he take the rest of the pieces to get them going because when I look at the rest of their pieces, I like D.D. Westbrook. Um, I like some of the other guys that they have. Like D.J. Chark was their first-round pick a year ago. He's a speed guy. Like we didn't see much of him this year, but maybe they can do some things. But I don't know if they have a team that can kind of play the style that you need to play for Nick Foles when you think about their best player on offense potentially being Leonard Fournette. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that comes together because that defense is legit. But with that defense, do you want to be conservative, run it, and occasionally let Nick Foles do it? I don't know. I mean, I think they have to be in play because they can't go with Blake Borders again. They have to get someone that they can depend on, someone that's a little safer, someone that is a little more consistent. Maybe Nick Foles can be that guy. We've seen him play at a high level in the playoffs, so maybe that's just enough to make Tom Coughlin, Doug Marone, Dave Caldwell believe that he can be the franchise quarterback for at least the short term. All right, if I've said Nick Foles to Jacksonville, I'd be surprised if that doesn't happen. 
Give me the favorite. Who makes the most sense for Joe Flacco when you look at all those teams? Which team makes the most sense? I've got mine in mind, but I want to see what you got. I would. I actually believe that Joe Flacco would benefit from going to the Denver Broncos. Thank you very much. That, um, that's ex- I am 100% in agreement. I think um, based on how the Broncos want to play, based on how Joe Flacco plays, strong running game, push the ball down the field. He has always been at his best in that he doesn't turn the ball over. And I think it is – um, easy to say that he would be an upgrade over Case Keenum, even though Case Keenum may have had better moments of late. Uh, he's I the think, opposite, though, right? right the, the that's opposite. my theory. You Thank always you go you hire ball. the opposite head coach or what you had. You always yeah, get the opposite yeah. skill set when you leave of quarterbacks. Yeah, I just think Joe Flacco is probably a better fit there. And the one other place that I would say that he potentially could fit, I think he would be a good fit with the New York Giants. I think with the New York Giants and what they have with Saquon Barkley and Odell Beckham and those guys, if they decided that they want to go that route, I think he's an upgrade and improvement over Eli Manning, and that says a lot. Yeah, that that is a powerful statement there. Uh, <laughs> those are the two. I mean, are there any? Is there any other? I mean, Teddy. Teddy's probably one. Yeah, uh, but my, like going like, back to Miami makes sense. Yeah, going back to Miami makes sense for Teddy. But I don't. You know, I don't know. Like he didn't necessarily play great. You would like to see him kind no. of. Sealed the deal when he had his opportunity at the very, very end of the year. He didn't play great in that game. I think there are a lot of people that are still um, optimistic about what he could be. But you would like to see him kind of finish it off strong to really make your evaluation pop, and he didn't do that. But you talked about him going to Miami. Makes perfect sense. And I think it makes sense for him not only being from Miami and the leadership that they need in the vacuum. I believe he'll be a better warm weather quarterback because the arm issues won't necessarily be a factor because the ball flies farther in the hot weather yeah no no doubt um we all want to be in warm weather uh, all right let's uh what do you say let's get to our i had a chance to to sit down with uh with bruce uh let's roll that interview and that conversation i had with bruce feldman and then we'll come back on and chat about it all right, excited to be joined by Bruce Feldman, Fox Sports superstar, and now a uh, taking his prolific writing duties to The Athletic, which I would encourage you, if you do not have a subscription to The Athletic, it is it is much, much worth it, especially uh, for Bruce, who is the best in the business. Bruce, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Good to be on with you. I appreciate you, you carving out some time for us today. I, I want to start, you've written a couple interesting pieces lately, and uh, and one that I that I'm, want to start off with here is, that you went back and revisited the meat market, which is a, is a recruiting book that you penned. I guess what was that about oh six oh seven when that came out, Bruce? It was. I basically spent two years uh, inside the Ole Miss football program when Ed Ogeron was the head coach there, and it was a fascinating project all the way around. Yeah, it is a great read. You know, I encourage you to go read it. It revisits a lot of these individual players and where are they now? What happened to these guys? Um, and, and even catching up with Ed Orgeron in terms of the success he's had going on, going back to USC, had some success as an interim there, and then has, uh, has done a nice job at LSU. I believe he just got – didn't he just get a new contract as well down there in the bayou? No, it's not, it's not done yet, but I think LSU would like to extend him, and I think they're still trying to sort that part out. Okay. Well, the, the angle I want to take with you, because as we as you know, we are focused – on the on the NFL and the NFL draft in particular as we get to the spring. But I just feel like Orgeron is always mentioned for his recruiting skills. And he, you kind of get his – hear all the great stories. I remember Chantrell Henderson, the stories about him, you know, sitting on the couch, you know, with the, with the family and the grandparents. And he's always just found ways to connect with people. And I think people – his personality gets its due. I, I don't know that his evaluation skills – uh, get their due. You go all the way through his career, as you know quite well, Bruce. He's had a lot of first-round picks, 
a, a lot of successful players, and they haven't always been the five-star kid. He's unearthed uh, some hidden gems there. So selfishly, I just want to know, being around him for a couple years, in the evaluation process, not the recruiting process, but the evaluation process, what's made Orgeron so good? Well, a couple of things. So first of all, you look at who he learned under. I mean, he was on the Miami staff with Jimmy Johnson. And I think when people see Ogeron, they see this kind of Cajun caveman personality, and they just, you know, they look at him and go, oh, he doesn't seem that sharp, you know, kind of that. And they yeah. don't realize that he is always, he's always one of these guys who's always learning and picking stuff up. And I think he learned a lot under Jimmy Johnson. He learned a lot in a short amount of time under Paul Pasqualoni at Syracuse and some other guys. And I think what was big for him is, he trusts his evaluation, and he believes in it so much. He He's not shy about being – he likes to be the first person to offer a guy because he feels like, you know what, if I'm the first person to, to go out and stick my neck out for a kid, that kid, there's going to be some kind of connection, maybe a loyalty feeling like, hey, we were the first ones to believe in you. And that can, that can help him on the, on, the, on the recruiting and on the wooing side of the recruiting process. But you talk about – you know, a lot of these guys were not the five-star guys because usually when he offers them, they're, they're no-star guys because they haven't really been evaluated yet. Or maybe they're three-star or two-star guys. You know, Ryan Khalil, who turned out to be a, a terrific NFL lineman, I remember Ogeron telling me the story. He's a recruiting coordinator at USC, and he said, Ryan Khalil's from Orange County. He's, I don't know what he is, maybe 6'2". Uh, they had him at their camp. He was not a big recruit, and they watched him the top ranked defensive line guy, I think, I don't know if he's in the country, but certainly at that camp was a guy named Derek Landry from Northern California, ended up going to Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yeah. And, I think he wore 66 yeah. at Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah. and they said, you know, he said, we watched Ryan Cole, you know, kick that guy's butt rep after rep, and he's like, we wore on on, on Ryan Cole so much in that, in that camp. We're like, you know, we whipped his butt just to see how tough he was and, you know, just demanding and demanding and demanding. And Ryan Khalil turned out to be probably the best player in the, uh, I would say, of the best recruiting class in modern history, at least in the star system. And that was that 2003 USC class that had a bunch of first rounders and a bunch of second rounders. And again, that was a three-star guy. And so, one of the things I've heard back on the on the other end of this, you know, revisiting meat market a, a deck a twelve years later, was I remember t- I talked to T. Bob Abair, who started for a couple of years at LSU and was a highly ranked kid who Ogeron couldn't get. But T. Bob said we went to a camp he had, and he said it was a different level camp in terms of how hands on he was. He goes, it was almost primal, but he said it was fun, but it was super competitive. And kids really responded to that. And so what I think Ogeron's been really good at is, you know, you can be all, you know, he, he loves track times and all the measurables just like everybody else. But the biggest thing I always heard from him was how tough is a kid? How competitive is he? How much does he love football? You know, how football smart is he? Those things, because if you can figure those things out, you probably won't have a bust on your hands. If, if you have a kid who loves football and is competitive and is tough. You know, it doesn't mean he's going to turn out to be Reggie Bush. It doesn't mean he's going to turn out, you know, to be some, some you know, uh, Patrick Willis. But it means you'll probably have a player that's good for your program. And that was what he was big on. He's big on, you know, the, the biggest kiss of death for him was always a kid who may have a good 40 time or something, but he was stiff. 
And that's the thing they always tried to find out. And there's little tests, obviously, people in the scouting world do. But he said sometimes those things, you just don't know what you have until you have a kid on your campus for a couple of weeks. I'm just trying to uh, to extrapolate that out to the NFL level. And, and to me, just listening to this conversation, it puts such an emphasis on the spring in terms of being able to put these kids through your own private workouts because that's like your own little camp. You know, college kids, college coaches always encourage prospects to come into their camp. Most of them, you would know better than I. It seems like a lot of programs have a philosophy, right? If you don't camp there, they won't offer you a scholarship because they want a chance to get a chance to coach you, see how you learn, uh, see how you handle some adversity, and just see how you operate on their practice field uh, kind of in an apples-to-apples ap- apples setting versus watching a kid play against inferior competition on high school tape. Right. And what's different now than it was five years ago is uh, now because the recruiting process is sped up, it's hard. Kids already have offers, and they're, they're going to go, not all of them, but a lot of these kids are going to go, well, I'm not going to go to camp. Why do I need to go to that, that camp? I already have 11 offers. And so the evaluation process gets murkier because it's exactly what you just said. I, I can still hear his voice going, we want to see him in our drills and see how they handle our coaching, you know, and how they, what they pick up and what they don't. I, I think it's a more of a blind than what you guys have at the NFL level because you have, you know, more evolved guys. There's less project, there's projection, but it's obviously not like, you know, a lot of times these guys get a kid and they'll look and he's, he's a 6'4", 300-pound offensive lineman or defensive lineman, and the guys he's going up against are my size. Or, yep. you know, it's just – you just – you know, a guy can just maul somebody. You really don't, you know, and I think even a lot of the stuff that happens in the in the star system is they go to some kind of camp or an, the opening, and it's shorts and T-shirts. And you just really don't know that much about how, how good a guy is. Um, just as like a little bit of a, this popped in my head, this isn't necessarily Ogeron related, but it's Pete Carroll related. Yeah. There was an offensive lineman, um, that was from Arizona. I remember he was out at USC's camp and he was long and he looked pretty, you know, looked pretty athletic and he got whipped rep after rep. And I remember Pete Carroll going, Hey, get him in there again. It was like, and he, the guy got beat by like different body types each time. And he wasn't a big recruit, but I think his dad played maybe at Minnesota or something. I remember talking to the kid, but the kid ended up going to Michigan. And I believe he's now, he was like a first round pick. Who's now like the starting offensive tackle for the Tennessee Titans. Oh, Taylor. And, yeah, and it's just like, okay, let's see how resilient this kid is. What mm-hmm. happens when he's, he gets beat? Because he's probably going up against, at that camp at USC, he's probably going up against players who are better and more athletic than anything he sees regularly in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, what's this kid's mind, mentality like when he gets beat? How is he going to handle it? And I thought that was interesting, you know, a little snapshot of that. Taylor Lewan, the highest-paid left tackle in the NFL, I believe, after his contract extension last year. So he's, uh, he came out of that okay. Uh, when it was all said and done. I, I think the, the way that I would kind of summarize it, and this has been said in the scouting community before, but you talked about kind of the, the work ethic, do they love football, um, are they tough, all those things. I think those intangibles kind of set the floor of the evaluation. You're never going to completely miss on somebody when they're wired that way. And I think that then the, you get to the pure talent that can set the ceiling a little bit of where you go from there. Uh, but, man, when you look at guys that have busted out, I know I've done this personally when I do some self-evaluation of players uh, that I've graded over the years, though it is it is primarily that is number one on the list. Is there some type of a work ethic issue 
um, or you know injury history, things like that can pop up as well. But nine times out of ten, if a guy just completely busts, I mean, you don't imagine when you're watching a kid in college, you you don't imagine that he's you know you're you're not totally whiffing on the evaluation. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Some of these guys, look, he's he's big, he's explosive, he, you know, he can do this, that, or the other. Um, but if he co- totally flames out, it's it's usually not because of the ability issue. It's because of some of the other issues we just discussed. Yes, I mean, I think there's two two separate issues. I feel like I've heard Lewis Riddick bring this up a lot. You know, football character. It's the football character or it's the over, overall character. And yeah. one of the best players, you know, the book, the first evaluation that I get into in the book is of a 5'11", 185-pound, like, skills guy. Uh, it's Golden Tate. And they were mm-hmm. like, okay, what does he want to play here? Because he could do anything. You know, there's Harrison Smith, played five positions and, you know, would have been good at all of them. Another Tennessee, you know, bred kid. Um, but the one of the guys they loved the most was this defensive tackle who wore 99 from Louisiana and reminded Ogeron of Warren Sapp. And that kid, ultimately, you know, they questioned, there was questions about his work ethic um, and how hard he wanted to play. But mm-hmm. he could be dominant. And he, they couldn't get him. He went to Tennessee, didn't qualify, went, was sent to a junior college in Northern California, didn't stay there, went to Louisiana Tech, got booted out of there, went to Texas Southern. Well, I talked to his coach at Texas Southern, you know, this past week, and he raved about the kid athletically and how explosive. He goes, I've interned with the Houston Texans. I've interned with the San, with the San Diego Chargers. I've never seen anybody. You know, Melvin, Melvin Ingram, as, as explosive as he is, didn't have a get-off like Rolando Melanson. But Rolando had big issues off the field, and he never, you know, got the sniff of the NFL because of all the stuff that, you know, just matters matters most. No matter how talented you are, if you don't have it together, you know you're going to be a waste of people's time. That's why it's it's so important to get to know these kids, and not only get to know them, but talk to everybody else around them, teammates, coaches, support staff. Gather as much information so you can make a, a good decision there when you're investing that type of money and putting your job on the line with with who you're going to select in the draft. I, I want to uh, transition a little bit over from Orgeron uh, to the two best coaches in football right now. Um, it's been that way for a long time. At the college level, it's been Nick and Nick Saban. I know uh, Davos has got his number a little bit lately, but I think I don't think you get any uh, any argument that Nick's still the king of the mountain there. And then when you look at the NFL level, it's Bill Belichick. And you wrote recently about all the the roster, the staff turnover for Nick that he's had at Alabama, losing assistants and coordinators just about every single year. And we've seen this off season now with Bill Belichick, he loses another coach. Uh, and Brian Flores, who takes off to go to the Miami Dolphins. Now, the difference between the two, you know, at face value is while Saban has lost a lot of coordinators, Patricia the year before last year, then you see Flores go. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, Charlie Weiss back in the day, Romeo Cornell. We've seen attrition on that staff. But for the most part, I think all but three years there, he's had Josh McDaniels there. Dante Scarnecchi, the best offensive line coach on the planet, has been with him for the majority of this run. He's had some some key figures. Yeah, Ernie Adams, kind of behind the scenes, has been there with him. Nick Cesario has been there with him. Um, so he's had some nucleus or a core there with him the entire time. Has has Saban had people we don't know about? Maybe the the core group there that we don't know about. And how have both these guys, if you're going to compare them, how have they been able to survive some of the transition that they've had? Yeah, it's an interesting parallel. Obviously, those two guys spent a ton of time together before. But I think what What's key here is so this year, and the big part of that story that you know I did on the athletic a couple of weeks ago was he's going to lose seven of the ten on-field coaches this cycle that he had, and that's after bringing in six new coaches last wow. year. 
none of the guys who are the on-field being, you know, coordinators or position coaches ha- that he has have been with him very long. So the three holdovers who are going to be from last year going past signing day, Jeff Banks, the special team coordinator, he was there last year was his first year. Pete Golding, who's, you know, defensive coordinator, last year was his first season. And Carl Scott, defensive backs coach, also last year was his first. So nobody has any extended length of time with the on-field coaches. But as I got into this story, I talked to a lot of people on the staff, or, you know, inside the program, but also people who used to work there. And this was, a, I think, an eye-opening quote for me from a former uh, assistant there. It doesn't rely as much on assistant coaches because it's so structured. He's got two huge factors, Scott Cochran, who's a strength coach, and Jeff Allen, who's the director of sports medicine. Those are the good cops. The players aren't as miserable as the coaches because of those guys. They only deal with Saban a little bit. When you're a coach, you, you deal with him all day. When you're a player, you deal with Cochran and Jeff way more than you deal with Saban. And the big thing is you've got better players than everybody else. It's not even close. He's out-recruited everybody. And I think that's telling because, you know, most Alabama fans know who Scott Cochran is because that, you know, incredibly gravelly voice and he's high energy like most strength coaches. He's making a ton of money too. Yeah, and I don't think anybody knows who Jeff Allen is unless you're, you know, maybe in your line of work, DJ. You know, but those are the key pieces that make it run along with Saban is so good at what he does. I mean, he's head and shoulders better than everybody else as far as college head coaches. So has he has he just kind of kept? I know defensively, obviously Saban has his core uh, philosophy and core tenets there. When he keeps bringing in these new coordinators each and every year, especially the defensive coordinators, um, it, terminology, all those things. I mean, is it just kind of Saban's terminology, and those guys come in and got to learn and adapt and, and go with it, or is he really changing things up on a yearly basis? Uh, I think he's tweaked things a little bit, but it's still his show. You know, yeah. there's, there's a story I'm working on now about Pete Golding, who's a rising star in coaching, and really it was way off the radar. He was at UTSA when Saban heard about him and has like this legendary now seven-hour on-the-board interview where Pete Golding blows him away um, with just how sharp he is. And I think there's things that – but you're coming in to do what Nick does, right? He's the secondary guy. And so much of that happens. I mean, they've had D-line guys cycle in and out, um, it feels like, every two years. And so it's, it's what Nick does. Now, he definitely made some adjustments uh, offensively. You know, I think with some of the RPO game, I think Mike Loxley helped him in the last couple of years, not just as the offensive coordinator, but with the QB run game. I think what you've seen from, from Lane, some of the ways they handle things and really exploiting you know, here's our go-to guy, and we're going to find different ways to get him the ball. But for the most part, you know, he's had he's had key influences like Joe Pendry for a long time was a behind-the-scenes, really invaluable. Yeah, so I I think you know he knows what he's doing, and I think some of the the recruiting principles and different things that's Nick Saban's blueprint. I mean, you know, you talk to guys who coach there saying, you know. I thought we would have had maybe some big, more big receivers, but Nick Saban wants a certain kind of this and a certain kind of that, and it, it works. I mean, it's, obviously, it's, he's the, by far the best coach, at least of my lifetime in college football, and he's recruiting at a high level, and I just think the guys adapt to him. And one of the things you hear from these guys who used to work there is, hey, you go in as an assistant getting the job thinking, all right, this is probably a short-term proposition, maybe one year, maybe two years, 
and it's going to better me for the way out. And you always hear guys have better relationships with Nick Saban after they worked for him than when they worked for him. It's like you've survived. <laughs> yeah, it's a badge of boot honor camp. for a lot of yeah. guys. Yeah, exactly. You made it through. Um, I won't, real quick here, I won't keep you too long, Bruce. You've been generous with your time. Uh, but wanted to hit you up on a couple guys um, getting ready to look at this draft class. I know you've got a chance to be around a lot of these kids and their coaches and some of their backstory. Uh, I just want to pepper you on a, on a couple of them. Uh, Rashawn Gary, I think, is going to be one of the more polarizing players in this draft class because he's a little bit more athlete than football player at this point in time. Everything I've been told, he's going to test like a freak. I, I didn't even I go back and look at your freaks list. I'm imagining he's probably made his way onto that thing. Um, yeah. But he is going to be, you know, 280 pounds. He might, and I've been told he might even run in the four fives, which is astronomical. Uh, but the the production never quite matched the talent there at Michigan. I know he was a, a big time, high profile recruit. Uh, what can you tell me about Rashawn Gary? Yeah, he was number one on my free list this past year. There you uh, go. There's so many good D linemen. The production parts would scare me a little bit. There's two guys that I would put put in that similar category, and they're both Big Ten guys. And it's him and one of the tight ends, Noah Fant from. Iowa, who's just a you know a, He's a tremendous athlete, yeah. But the production you wonder about is T.J. Hawkinson, who's more versatile. The other tight end, I feel like I have a little more faith in. But mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me if either one of those guys, being Noah or or Gary, goes into the NFL and for whatever reason, just because it's somebody gets it out of them, they get more comfortable, um, and then they just flourish and become an you know big impact guy because just because they're so gifted. Um, but again, I, I, there were other, the other big 10 linemen that I think were more impressive. And I think that we saw a lot more linemen that I thought were just more productive than he was. So I could see why t- would somebody would take him in the, you know, he'll blow up an Indian. Somebody will take him in the top 15, but it would, I, I don't know. Just How do they explain it? How do they explain it? I mean, you know, those coaches there at Michigan, you've met with them. How do they explain the gap between the ability and the production? Do they ever offer gotta- any explanation? We well, got to remember, though, I mean, because the guy on the other side of the ball, Chase Winovich, made a yeah. ton of plays, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's like that was, a, aside from the end of the season, that was a really good defense, and he was an important part of a really good defense. You know, but the guy you'd hear them rave about more, not just Winovich, was Bush. Oh, the there. linebacker? Undersized linebacker who flies yeah, all over the yeah. place. And that's the one you would always hear about. So um, it's not a knock on him. I guess it's a relative, though, because it feels like it's a knock if you're talking about a top-10 pick. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That's going to be a fun one. I think he's going to go up there, Bruce. Out. I think his skill set is so tantalizing. And here's the thing. Sometimes you get guys that are athletically gifted like that. They don't have the production. And a lot of times you question, well, I don't know, this guy's a great athlete, but, man, he doesn't play hard. Does he even want to be out there? This kid plays his butt off, and he is disruptive. He generates a lot of pressure. He just he struggles to kind of locate the football at times. Some, I think it's more of an instinct thing. But I think he plays hard. You watch him hustle on the backside and do all kinds of things. So I think the fact that you have this freakish athlete who shows that he cares on the field, that he's going to go in the top ten, even if the production doesn't warrant it. Yeah, and the character part is not a worry because you talk to guys who worked with him and coached him. They really like him as a kid. He's intelligent. They like him. It's just that piece you wonder about a little bit just because of production. Now, maybe there's there's more to it in the film, like you said, but um, it's not a character issue. I've heard a lot of good things from the guys who coached him. So well, no, off the field, no, no off the field issues there. One guy who does, um, and I'm putting you on the spot here because I don't know how much you, you, you know about this kid, but – Jeffrey Simmons is my fifth overall player in the draft. He is ridiculously talented defensive tackle prospect from Mississippi State who has a video 
with a physical altercation with a woman when he was in high school before he got to Mississippi State. I've talked to tons of, of evaluators that have gone through the school on the school call, and they say that they rave about him, have had no issues with him whatsoever. He's an honor roll student. They said you could talk to any of his professors, his coaches, any of the students on campus. You will not find anybody that will say one bad thing about Jeffrey Simmons. However, there is a video that exists of the altercation with the with the female in high school, and he has not been invited to the combine as part of that policy the NFL has put in place. So he's going to obviously be under intense scrutiny as we go towards the draft um, with uh, with that video being out there. What what have you heard about Jeffrey Simmons? And, uh, and what can you tell us there that maybe I don't know? Yeah, for a little context on that. So he was suspended, and this, this got even more attention because Mississippi State, it was the old Dan Mullen staff and the old AD, they suspended him for one game, and it was his first game, and it was against a terrible opponent. And people were like, okay, this is kind of a farce to begin with. This is, if you want to do something, you're really doing this. And it got more attention because it really broke around SEC media days in, in Jeffrey Simmons' first year. So from my understanding, the story was there was an altercation between one of his relatives, who was a female, and this woman. Simmons jumped in to protect his, I don't know if it's his older sister or his aunt, and then he got involved, and it's seen on the video as striking this woman, and it's multiple times. Um, And it's a horrific video. Everything you've heard since then, and it's the same stuff you're saying, and I know these Mississippi State staff, especially the new one, which is the Joe Moorhead, Bob Shoup mm-hmm. staff, um, has been ext- extremely positive, like you said, about what kind of person he's been in Starkville for three years. And Bob Shoup will be an interesting person for people to talk to because I, he was the, the defensive coordinator at Tennessee before Mississippi State we had a conversation about Jeffrey Simmons and going to visit him. Uh, I remember sitting in Shoup's office, and he talked about like where he was, like kind of where Jeffrey Simmons came from. And and there's, you know, I don't want to get into too much because it wasn't like a, I wasn't there to talk to him about Jeffrey Simmons. But I remember his perspective on Jeffrey Simmons is probably going to be about as good as anybody because he knew Jeffrey Simmons. Before, as a recruit, but he also knew him as a guy who was not getting Jeffrey Simmons. Remember, he was at Tennessee. He, I don't think yeah. he ever thought he was going to coach him. Yeah. And then he's coached him uh, this past year, and he's really talented, and he has something really ugly in his past. But it definitely seems like, if you talk to everybody, that he's come a long way from that, and that was just one really bad moment in the heat of the moment. Um, so I, I think this is going to be a, uh, this is going to be one where. I think they're going to have whoever whoever drafts him, and I bet he's going to be a top top ten pick because he yes. is really productive. Is going to have to is going to have to navigate uh, the PR stuff that's going to come from something happened with him in high school. But again, I think they're going to have to be very vocal about all the people they talk to at Mississippi State, both on the Dan Mullen staff and now on the Joe Moorhead staff about what what he's been like since he's been there. And I think they're going to have to be really upfront about. Because I think there is a lot of positivity about all the people you'll you'll talk to about what he's been like when they're being honest. Um, couple, I mean, two more guys, and I'll let you run. Uh, Marquise Brown from Oklahoma is uh, is listed at five ten, one hundred sixty eight pounds. I've been told he's he's going to be over one hundred seventy pounds, um, which is good for me because he's my ninth overall player. Which is something again, it's it's awkward to have somebody so undersized, so highly rated 
but he looks different when I when I look at all the receivers in this draft class and I stack them up. This kid's just different than everybody else. He's got a different type of juice. He's fluid. He's an excellent route runner. He's not just, you know, um, a, a post-go guy. Like, he does a lot of different things. You can see him get in and out of breaks. I was uh, with the Eagles, I believe, when Deshaun Jackson was coming out. No, where was I? No, I think it was – I actually might have been in Baltimore. But Deshaun Jackson was the exact same player, exact same size. I think Marquise Brown might be a little bit tougher. Um but where, where did this kid uh, where did this kid come from, and uh, and what's your what's your thoughts on him from what you've uh, spoke to there with that Oklahoma staff about Marquise Brown, what type of player he is? Yeah, he's a Florida kid who went to junior college. Dennis Simmons is his receivers coach there, and and Dennis has been around a lot of really good football players and a lot of really good receivers. He was with Dennis Simmons is an old BYU linebacker, but he was on Mike Leach's staff at Texas Tech. He coached, and he was really a, a guy who helped Michael Crabtree. Uh, he's had really good players everywhere he's been at receiver. He's, you know, he's about as good a receivers coach as there is from, from recruiting to, to helping kids get developed. Um, and he loves that kid. He just said a lot of the stuff you're talking about where, you know, Oklahoma had some, had some speed before. I mean, you remember a couple of years ago, they had a, uh, what you look like a small receiver by NFL center, D.D. Westbrook, who could, who could yeah. just light up the Big 12 and mm-hmm. was a great college receiver. Now, he had more baggage. I don't think, from what I've heard, Brown has the off-field baggage at all. He's just tiny. And yeah. I'm a little surprised that you have him that high, not because I don't think he was a, a, you know, a phenomenal weapon, but just because he is so small and, you know, he's not Tyreek Hill where you look at Tyreek Hill is a thicker guy. But when I watch him, I'm like, man, he's got a different gear than everybody else on the field. I don't, you know, I don't know if I, to me, I don't think Brown is, is that because I just think he's smaller. But one of the things of frustration from talking to Dennis at OU was that the a couple of days after the, they lost to Alabama, he was banged up in that game. He yeah. tried to play. He, they said he's a tough kid in terms of tough heart. Uh, you know, just he's going to give you whatever he has. But he is small, and you just you just wonder about the durability issue. But he he, he is a weapon for somebody because of that, that gear he has. And he really just took off when he was at Oklahoma in Lincoln Riley's system. And like I said, Dennis Simmons has done a really good job with receivers like this, uh, especially at OU since he's been there. Yeah, to me, I mean, he's not – he doesn't have the same build as, as Tyreek in terms of the, the thickness. But I've seen the career, you know, and I think this kid's probably a little bit cleaner off the field than Deshaun Jackson. But I've seen the career that Deshaun's had. Deshaun was 169 pounds. So it's it, that's the same exact body type that I saw. And I think if Deshaun was clean coming out of the draft, I, mean, I had a huge grade on him. He would have been a top 15 pick. Um, and, and it's proof really through his career that he was, he was worth Deshaun. it. The other, one, the other one I would compare, Bruce, um, watching this kid – Justin and and he's going to run much faster than Antonio Brown, but Anto- just movement wise, when you watch Antonio Brown, looks like he's moving at a different speed, game speed wise. This kid, I went back and watched him against Georgia last year, working against DeAndre Baker, who I think is one of the best corners in this draft class. And it's just like he's just—it looks like a a rowboat trying to catch up to a speedboat. It's a it's a different level of juice. Well, the, I, well, I like, you know, obviously he's not not as big as Antonio either, but the thing that I think is a common thread, they're both South Florida kids who were lost in the recruiting shuffle for a while. And I think when you're that size, no matter how fast you are, and obviously, I, like you said, he's, he'll, he'll time way faster than Antonio, but he 
they both have that chip on their shoulder that I think is obviously critical if you're going to try to survive in the NFL at that size. And I just think that because he was a, uh, you know, he, he always showed up in, in these games. The Alabama game was unfortunate because he was so banged up that they really felt like he was going to, they could exploit a lot of mismatches uh, against the Alabama secondary, which eventually obviously Clemson did. But, uh, you know, again, like I said, I'm a little surprised just because he is, when people see him in person, I'm like, man, he's small. Um, yep. But he's but he is he's got a gear that's rare, right? No question. Yeah, it's going to be interesting evaluation. I, we talk about receiving cores. To me, you know, you build them like basketball teams, so you want to have a variety of dudes. Now you're going to want to have some bigger guys that can do some of those things on third down in the red zone that he's not going to quite give you. Um, but man, he's he's your point guard because that's uh, that's a valuable piece to have in an offense. Get, you're looking for explosive plays. He's going to give you that and and, uh, and plenty of it. Last one here, and I, and I'll let you move. Uh, Andre Dillard, tackle from uh, Washington State. I know you know him quite well. Um, I caught some eyeballs when I had him rated as highly as I did, but I just thought pass protection wise, he's the best. Uh, he's the best pass protecting left tackle. I thought that I studied all these tackles in this draft class and. I think there's room for him to grow. I think there's more in front of him. I think he's a special athlete. Uh, I think he's a darn good football player. I thought he held himself, handled himself really well during the week of practices down there in Mobile. Gave up a sack in the game. wasn't uh, wasn't his best there, but uh, but overall, I think he's a really really good player that not a lot of people know about. Yeah, his story is really interesting. I, about a month or so ago, I did a piece about why it's so hard to evaluate O linemen, and he is a great example of it, just because. When he was a two or low three star recruit coming out of high school, and Washington State, Mike Leach is always going to take five O linemen, and so you can gamble more. And they gambled on that kid because he was six four, two forty. And the guy who recruited him, Clay McGuire, who's now at Texas State, was his O line coach. And he said, "I went to see him. Went to his old school. You know, he'd already, we'd already signed him." And I'm like looking at him, like, "Man, he hasn't gained an ounce." And so they were worried when he showed up, but then eventually. You know, he put on the weight, he redshirted, and uh, Clay McGuire thinks he's going to run in the 4.8s or mm-hmm. low 4.9s in Indy. And he's got really good feet. I think one of the things from talking to coaches in the Pac-12, and we do a bunch of Pac-12 games at Fox, um, you heard how much better they thought he got this year. Now, he had Clay McGuire for three years, and this year he had Mason Miller was a new O-line coach there. And I think the ability just for him to anchor – um, they tweaked his stance, some of those things that, that you heard he got better at. Um, I think he's obviously got a lot of experience. It's just, you know, how many so, high-level so Bruce, Bruce the, did he the, see? The O-line coach that he had this last year is a kid, is a guy that came from uh, from Nevada, right? Right. Who had he coach Petonio. And, yeah. Yeah. So and, this was because when you watch him, it's noticeably different than the traditional leech offensive lineman where – they're always in vertical sets, which is mean they're taking a step straight back, which is going to be challenging to play that way at the NFL level. There's a couple line coaches that will teach it, but not many. Um, and I saw when I watched him a lot more traditional sets, and it was not typical of a leech offense. So you could tell there had been a little bit of a change there in the offensive line, which will benefit this kid going forward because that was a knock on a lot of these air raid uh, tackles was, man, that's a big adjustment. They've never had to take a traditional set. They've always been vertical set guys. So uh, that, that to me, was will really help him with teams in the evaluation process. And, and, you know, he's just a very fluid athlete. They knew he was – I think they knew, you know, uh, genetics-wise, his dad was, was, a, was a big guy. He was also a college football player. They were, they were encouraged by that. Um, 
you know, what's, what's interesting is there's another guy who's, I think, two years younger on the Washington State roster, Abe Lucas, who's on the other side, who's 6'8", who they think has maybe even more potential. He's even bigger. He's even longer. Uh, maybe almost as athletic, too. So that's a name to remember. But, again, you know, people in Pullman, I mean, this is, a, this is the example where it's like, where did he come from? They rolled the dice. Sometimes you roll the dice and the kid just never develops. This one sounds like he's going to develop into possibly a high first rounder. Yeah, how about that? Well, Bruce, I've taken way too much of your time. Um, I could hey, sit here I and pepper one, you. Can I pick your brain on one guy who I yeah, like? Yeah. Who I don't know Go where for he fits. Yeah, so we did. A, we we must have done Washington five times this year. I think I saw them in person five or six times. Uh, I I'm a believer in Miles Gaskin. I know he's not very big. Um, could he do what Philip Lindsay did? So that's exactly. It's funny you say that because I was talking to a uh, personnel executive last night, and that's the name that came up. His name's come up with another general manager that I've talked to. I, I've done him, and I liked him. I, you know, it was it was interesting because I said to this general manager at the, at the Senior Bowl, I said Miles Gaskin is going to get the Philip Lindsay bump. He's a four-year ultra-productive Pac-12 kid who's not going to be real big, who's going to probably run pretty fast. Um, he's going to get the Philip Lindsay bump because the league missed on Philip Lindsay. So that was the exact same comparison I made in terms of I love the kid's quickness, a stop-start quickness. Uh, he's, he's just patient. really, really instinctive. He's, he's patient. Yeah. They use him kind of in the Wildcat stuff there, as you know. Uh, just really good with the ball in his hands. Now, I actually thought Philip Lindsay had a little bit more power to him. Uh, you know, even though he didn't have the biggest body type, I thought he had a little bit more strength. But I think he's going to get the bump. Now, that bump to me is probably, I would say, the high water mark would be the fourth round. Um, and I would say probably you're in between the fourth and sixth round is where he ends up going ultimately. I feel like a year from now, I'm sitting watching a game and go, hey, <laughs> that kid who, who looked like he was like, what, 192 pounds? He just ran for 1,000 yards. Good for, good for Miles Gaskin. He was like, yeah. That's all he's ever done. He was almost always the best player in every game. And I think even when he even when they played Ohio State, you know, I think he was better than the Ohio State running backs. You know, I'm not a big I'm not a big uh, Mike Weber fan, so he's ahead of him on my list. The problem, though, Bruce, Miles Gaskin. When I was watching all the running backs, he came up right after my App State guy. So you know, when I once I saw Jalen Moore, I was it's, it's hard to come in after that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Jalen well, Moore against Penn State. Combine, right? Jalen Moore, if he's healthy, you know, he was uh, had that injury and. Um, couldn't couldn't participate there in the Senior Bowl, but he is really good. I went back and watched that Penn State game. It was tough to watch the end of it, but uh, he was really really good against that against that group. So uh, it, it's it's a really good group of running backs. It's a deep crop. I don't think there's a not a Todd Gurley or Ezekiel Elliott in this group. I, I love uh, Josh Jacobs, but uh, I think it's it's a deep group. I think it's it, the value is going to be in that third fourth round range in this draft. Yeah, it's funny we did the, the I CD your your cohort in yeah. NFL. Uh, I did the NFL PA Bowl, and it was like Wes Hills. From oh, he loves that dude, man. He showed up at the Senior Bowl. Charles was all over him. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, he was. He was. Uh, you loved his perspective. I mean, Clinton Portis was the running back coach for his team in that game. He was like, he's definitely an NFL player. I was like, why? He goes, because he's hungry. And you know, it's, it's funny. It's like you know the the ant who recognized the other ant. You kind of wonder when, like, you know, sometimes we're going to go talk about. Uh, you know, he runs patient. He does this. He does that. And Clinton Portis is around in the week. He's just kind of looking in his eye and goes, oh, that's an NFL running back. You know, and yeah, he, he, he had the fir- at the senior bowl, he had the first carry, 
he hunted up uh, Terrell Hanks. I don't know if you saw the linebacker from New Mexico State. It was the loudest collision of the week. Yeah, I mean, that's what CD, you know, to CD's credit, he, he brought that up in our pregame. And, you know, just an interesting, you know, he's another New Jersey kid who turned out to be a really good football player. And, you know, because he's from a small high school, ended up uh, ended up at Delaware and then ended up at Slippery Rock. So, uh, I don't know. I don't want to put all your time on that. But, no, but uh, no, it's I, I just thought it was going to be fun to watch what happens with some of these kids. Yeah, we're going to get you on here again, uh, hopefully a couple more times here before we get to the draft because we can just you know, bounce ideas off on these players and continue to learn more and more about them. It's, uh, it's my favorite time of the year, man. Bruce, you've been, you're the best. Appreciate your time, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks for the kind words. Always a pleasure, DJ. Hopefully I'll see you in Indy. Yep, sounds good. There he is, the great Bruce Feldman. Nobody better, uh, the best in the business. And, again, check him out on The Athletic. If you don't subscribe, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. All right, Buck. Well, there you go. You get a chance to uh, to hear that chat with Bruce. I, I know you've uh, you've already heard it. So, what what you uh, what you take away there? Uh, I think the big thing, like obviously, I'm always fascinated by the stuff that comes out with uh, Nick Saban and the comparison with Bill Belichick and all that other stuff. But the things that you did, guys discussed at the end, where you talked about the Philip Lindsay bump, um, yeah. how often does that happen in the scouting business? Where the year before, someone that you oh, kind of yeah. lukewarm on. You don't go get so the next year a prospect that exhibits some of those similar qualities you go all in on and I'm gonna tell you a funny story. Uh, when I was in Seattle, it may have been my second or third year. It was the draft with Antoine Randall L. Yeah. Antoine Randall L. At the Senior Bowl was dazzling. He was a quarterback, but he did some things where he he caught punts. He did some wide receiver stuff at the Senior Bowl, and Mike Holmgren was fascinated by him. We didn't take him. He goes and has a pretty solid rookie year doing some gadget stuff for the Pittsburgh Steelers. The next year, Seneca Wallace is in the draft. (laughs) Seneca Wallace is a guy that we took because of Antoine Randall L. And early in Seneca Wallace's career with the Seahawks, he returned punts. He played a little slot wideout. He did a lot of little things before he kind of became like the journeyman quarterback. But because we missed out on Antoine Randall L, we went back and tried to get a Randall L clone in Seneca Wallace. I think we're going to see that happen this year. The Baker Mayfield effect, uh, Darius Leonard, some of the other guys, Derwin James, guys that people passed on for whatever reason, they're going to go back and try and find those guys that are quote-unquote clones, and they're going to overdraft them to make up for what they didn't get the season prior. Yeah, no doubt. I think you're going to see the bump. It's going to happen. We we saw it even uh, a little bit with the Tyreek Hill, right? We saw with Tyreek oh, Hill who yeah. had some had mm-hmm. tremendous speed, but there was some, some troubling questions. things off the field. Yep. And then Antonio Callaway, who if there's mm-hmm. no Tyreek Hill, I don't know that Antonio Callaway gets drafted. Absolutely. Uh, with some of his issues. Uh, but see the way Tyreek Hill worked out so well, and, and the same guy that took both of them, um, he went back to it. So uh, John Dorsey ended up uh, taking a shot there, taking a flyer on Callaway there, what, the fourth round, I think it was? When yeah, it was and then Callaway, up. and Callaway performed very, very well for them. Uh, emerged as maybe their second receiver behind Jarvis Landry. So, yeah, people will take chances. The Baker Mayfield thing, I think, makes it easier for people to take a Kyler Murray, even though Kyler Murray doesn't have the same physical dimensions. But because all those guys are considered uh, shorter quarterbacks, Kyler Murray would get the bump from Baker Mayfield going number one and playing well because 
He plays in the same system at Oklahoma that elevated Baker Mayfield. There's some people that are going to elevate him just because they're like, look, we saw Baker Mayfield do it. Why can't Kyler Murray do it? No doubt. Uh, it's going to be fun to watch and see how this thing all unfolds. There definitely is a copycat uh, effect in NFL scouting. All right, Buck, staying on quarterbacks there for a second. I know you had a chance to visit with Dwayne Haskins down there at the Super Bowl in Atlanta. Uh, let's uh, let's give the folks at home a chance to, to listen to your conversation. Here you go. Here's Bucky with the Buckeyes signal caller. Joined on the Move the Sticks podcast by my man, Ohio State quarterback Dwayne Haskins. How's everything going? It's going great, man. I'm having a blast out here. You know, Dwayne, like so many people are excited about your potential and the things that you've been able to accomplish. Just tell me, what were you able to learn about yourself during your final season at Ohio State? I got so much work to do, you know. I feel like I get so much better. Uh, going through every game, I learn something new about myself. But uh, I know that I got a ways to go, but it's scary how good I feel like I can be. You know, in, in looking at your game at Ohio State, what would you say some of the things that you bring to the table for an NFL team? Distributor. Uh, just be able to throw all over the field, short, intermediate, deep and then be able to, to have time and routes, deep routes. There's stuff that I can do all over the field to give an offensive a very good dynamic. Now, one of the questions that you were here as you continue to go forward in the process are, who are some of your role models? Who are some of the guys and the pros that you pattern your game after? A lot of guys. Um, i say Drew Brees' accuracy, Aaron Rodgers' off-platform throws, um, Tom Brady's leadership, the stuff that everybody does well, try to, try to model into my game. I don't really say just one specific quarterback because everybody has their own thing that they do well. But I just love, I love, just love the game. You know, like obviously having watched you since you were a teenager coming yeah. through the camp cir circuit, I knew that you were a special player. But if you had to tell people what is going to allow you to be a special player in the pros, what would you say that one trait is? I'm humble, man. Just, just knowing that I, I know I haven't reached the surface of what I can be. I'm going to keep working hard. I'm going to get everybody around me better. And uh, just knowing that uh, I'm going to push myself every day. So then when we have an opportunity to visit with you at the Combine, what are some of the things that you want to show off at the Combine to make people feel comfortable about you potentially being the number one quarterback in this draft? Well, I'm going to kill the board. So I'm going to get on the board, coverages, protections, all that. I love that stuff. I'm going to be able to do well in the interviews. It's showing that I have the personality being a franchise quarterback. So uh, that's all I wanted to go do when I go to Combine and show that. Well, you know, man, we're excited about you, watching you in this process. I can't wait to talk to you again. Hopefully we get a chance to visit again at the Combine. I appreciate it, Buck. Thanks. Thank you. All right, Buck, what was, your, uh, what was your impression there getting a chance to visit with Haskins? I know you know him going back to high school. Going back to high school, revisiting with him, I think the thing that is going to happen at the Combine, he is going to wow people when he has the opportunity to meet with them. High football IQ, very smart, very cerebral. When I asked him the question about the quarterback that he patterned, he gave all the right answers. He talked about Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers and the like. I just believe that the more people get to know him and the more they get the chance to get on the board with him and to see where he is when it comes to his football IQ, I think it's going to be easy for people to envision him being a franchise quarterback. And I expect him to not only be the first quarterback to come off the board, I think he's going to go higher than many of us haven't pegged at this point. Yeah, I know. It's, it, quarterbacks get pushed up, and sometimes that – we think of that as a bad thing. Other times, quarterbacks climb up. They don't get pushed up. They climb up. They impress through the spring process, and it sounds like Dwayne Haskins is going to be one of the guys that's, that's able to get that done. Uh, you had a chance while you were there to visit with another Buckeye, um, and this guy, it, I believe, probably going to go ahead of Dwayne Haskins. might be the first overall pick. In fact, probably the favorite to be the first overall pick, and that's, uh, that's pass rusher Nick Bosa. Here's Bucky's chat with him at the Super Bowl. Joined on the Move the Sticks podcast by... Ohio State star Nick Bosa. How is everything going? 
It's good. It's busy. It's a busy weekend for me, but it's all going really well. So you obviously ended your season short because you had an injury. How's rehab coming on your core injury? It's pretty much coming to a close now. I'm just getting back to really full confidence in, in what I'm doing. So putting up some good numbers in training, so I'm ready to go for the combine. So now when we think about training, what are some of the things that you are working on as the combine gets closer? Of course, the 40. Everybody loves to watch that. And then get the 225 test. I think I'll blow that thing out. So um, just all the stuff. Might not translate to football so much, but I got to do it. So I'm working hard at it. All right. So now let's go back to the football field. When we watched you on tape at Ohio State, you know, like, what would you say the strong points are your, of your game on? I think pass rushing obviously jumps out. Um, just having good technique. Uh, I got good power, speed. Kind of like to switch up my moves, keep people guessing. And so, naturally, when when you're a guy that has been as accomplished as you've been, and people think about Sundays, who are some of the guys that you've watched outside of your brother that you may have patterned your game after? Um, I like to watch Aaron Donald, what he's doing at, from a three technique inside. I think he's innovating that position a little bit. Um, Demarcus Lawrence from Dallas, he's fun to watch. Uh, he plays so aggressively, and the, the cross shot move he uses is one that I definitely want to add to my game. So You know, so in, in thinking about that, one of the unique things about you, you're so good with your hands. You do a great job of switching up. you got counter tactics and moves. Where does that come from? Um, my coach, coach at Ohio State, my D-line guy, Coach Johnson, uh, he, he really instilled the technique and showed me what I needed to work on. And I think from there it's just up to you to really um, run with it. And I think me and my brother have done a really good job of taking the techniques that he's taught us and just using it, and it works. You know, so in, in thinking about your brother and your dad and your uncle all being first-round picks, what is it about the Bolsa name and the family where football is the family business. I mean, when you when you have my dad, who was a first-round pick, and then my mom's brother, who's the next year the 16th pick to the Dolphins, I mean, obviously those genes are going to create something that somebody who could play play ball pretty well. <laughs> so, I mean, i, I got to thank them for the genes. But um, you could have great genes and you could not put them to work, and um, I've really been working hard my whole life for this. So... When it comes to competitiveness, as a scout, we love legacy. And so the fact that your brother went a few years ago, one of the top players in the draft, how competitive is that battle between you and he when it comes to what you guys are able to do on the field? Um, I don't know if it's competitive as in just trying to beat each other. I think it's just trying to be the best that we could be together. And uh, I think next year joining him in the NFL, it'll, it might get a little more competitive now that we're at the same league, same level. Uh, It'll be interesting for sure. Well, one thing that has been a great experience has been sitting down, talking with you, having watched your game from afar, having studied you on tape. I'm in love with everything that you do. Best of luck to you going forward. I look forward to catching up with you again at the combine. That. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there you go, Buck. I mean, just even in the voice, you can kind of hear it, right? I mean, it just sounds just like his brother. I mean, it sounds just like him. Uh, look, more substance than sizzle. But what I loved about him when I kind of dug into the family business with he and his brother and 
you know, his uncle and his dad all being first-round picks, and we're assuming that Nick Bolts is going to be a first-round pick based on where he stands as maybe the best player in the draft. He talked about the family business and what he's learned and the guys that he modeled his game after. I think, obviously, each and every week you get a chance to see his older brother, Joey Bolsa, do his deal on the perimeter. And I think the, the similarities between the way they go about their business, just from a technical standpoint, makes those guys easy to embrace as the number one overall pick. I just think Nick Bosa is going to have an outstanding career. I think he's going to be disruptive and dominant at the point of attack. And his pass rushing prowess makes him a guy that is going to be highly coveted regardless of what he does at the combine. Yeah, no doubt. He's uh, he's a fun player to watch. Hopefully he is 100% chance to see him move around and, and kind of cement his status, if not the number one pick for sure, a top five pick in the upcoming draft. Uh, the Buckeyes got a good one there. I don't know there's any more Bosa's coming, though, so that's uh... – that's that's too bad for the Buckeyes. I know the guys won't be happy. Uh, anything else you want to get to here, Buck? I know it's been kind of a beefy show here, a lot of interviews, but uh, I feel like I always enjoy these episodes when I'm learning something, and I thought all of our guests, uh, I was able to take something away from it today, so I sure as heck enjoyed it. But is there anything we're missing before we get out of here? No, I mean, I think, I think we kind of covered it all. I think as we continue to get closer to the combine, I am excited to kind of start putting these guys in buckets, kind of sorting some of the guys, letting the listeners know, who they should be looking forward to watching at the Combine. We're going to have all that coverage on NFL uh, Network and NFL Media and all the outlets and stuff. But I am excited about the Combine, but I'm more excited to continue to dig into these prospects. Yeah, I know. I'm doing a lot of research here, watching tape, and doing some little projects I'm excited excited to share with all of our listeners here in in short order. So a fun time of year. Kent, appreciate you taking care of business for us back there behind the glass. Uh, That's going to do it for us today on Move the Six. We'll catch you next time right here. Thanks for downloading Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. For more, go to nfl.com slash podcasts. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you.